This is Urgent Matters. Since 2002, Urgent Matters has been the preeminent dissemination vehicle for best practices and cutting-edge innovation related to the delivery of emergency medical care. Broadcast out of George Washington University in Washington, D.C., I am Dr. Andrew Meltzer. Uh, I'm Ethan Cowan. I am an associate professor of clinical emergency medicine at the Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai and the research director for the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Beth Israel. So Ethan and I have known each other a long time. Ethan's always been sort of a mentor to me and uh, so I'm happy to talk to him. And uh, people keep saying, I'm on the front lines in DC, but you've been on the front lines really for the last two weeks and DC is really picking up in the last uh, few days, but uh, it's nothing like you've been experiencing um, for, I don't know, 10 days, 14 days now. It's been quite a while. Yeah, it's been about two weeks, I think, uh, since we've begun to get inundated with COVID patients. So probably earlier than that, I would say um, since uh, maybe the end of February um, is, when our, is when our COVID volume really started to pick up. And which hospital are you mostly at? So I'm almost, I'm entirely at Mount Sinai Beth Israel. So that's down in the East Village. Okay, great. So you're in Manhattan, and how does Manhattan compare, I guess, Queens and Brooklyn, or have you talked to your friends out in there, in the outer boroughs? Yeah, so what's what's interesting about being in a hotspot is that there are hotspots in hotspots. So Manhattan is affected just like the rest of the city, but I would say that the Lower East Side is not nearly as affected as some of the outer boroughs. So if you look at the Sinai sites in Queens and Brooklyn, um, particularly Elmhurst, Mount Sinai, Queens, and Mount Sinai, Brooklyn, those sites are very, very heavily affected. Whereas uh, our site on the Lower East Side, I don't believe is as heavily affected and the Upper East Side, I'm not as aware of, but again, our, I don't think that the Manhattan sites are, are getting hit nearly as hard as some of the outer boroughs. I've noticed in DC that certain areas seem to be doing a great job of socially isolating. And then when I drive to other parts of the city, it seems really hard. And so I can definitely imagine how you can have these really local hotspots within different communities. Um, like it's almost a privilege to be able to isolate if you're obviously poor or in crowded apartments or homeless, then, I mean, I, I just wonder where these people have to go. And uh, so yesterday I was in, uh, in United Medical Center and it's definitely serving in the, an underserved community. And um, there's, a, there's a different, I think, response in the community, mostly because people are sort of unable to isolate the same way they are in other parts of the city. Uh, so I worry that that neighborhood is really going to be surging over the next week. And I don't know if that's similar to what yeah, you're I seeing. Think, I think that's what you see here. So if you look at the hospital that's that's been most heavily affected is been Elmhurst. And that is a health and hospitals corporation facility serving a predominantly um, poor minority population. And yes, those people in those communities, I think cannot self isolate the same way that, that people in the wealthier parts of Manhattan can. I mean, people in, people have to work, they can't work from home. Uh, yeah. and, and also those hospitals are really under-resourced. So you get sort of a double whammy where you get huge volumes of patients who can't self-isolate, who, are, who have 
maybe not the best access to care to begin with, come in and they're quite sick. And at the same time, the hospital itself doesn't have the, the same types of resources as some of the private uh, academic centers. So yeah, we do see that in the city. I think we're gonna start to see that across the country um, as, a, as a pretty normal pattern. And when you're working, do you feel like you're protected? Do you feel like you're safe to take care of patients or does it feel pretty vulnerable? Yeah, I mean, our site, I think in the, so I will tell you in the first couple of weeks, it was, it was pretty tenuous because there were, there was a lot of concern about shortage of PPE. Uh, early, late February, early March, we were really rationing PPE. So, you know, you got one N95 per shift if you were in the ED, and then if you were someplace else, you, scored, you got one N95 per week. Um, that, I think, has changed in the last week and a half or so. So now I feel perfectly safe going to work. There's enough PPE. I think one of the other concerns in the beginning was that because we didn't know that much about the virus, um, there were a lot of patients who were coming in who didn't have the classic respiratory symptoms who wound up having COVID. So there was a lot of people coming in with sort of minor GI complaints, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. And we didn't recognize, I think at the beginning that that could potentially be COVID. The same thing with patients with altered mental status. So those patients weren't necessarily isolated. And we also didn't have sort of a discrete area to care for those people. So over in late February, early March, the hospital really began to revamp the ED. They actually um, enclosed a number of the rooms that were open, that were previously open with curtains. They put doors on those rooms. And then in the last week and a half, we've now um, basically separated the ED into a COVID area and a quote unquote clean pod. Uh, I mean, the clean pod is as clean as possible, meaning that it's patients who we really don't think have COVID. So somebody who's coming in with an ankle sprain or a laceration. Um, or maybe a, a GYN complaint, uh, whereas the other pods are really just strictly for COVID suspected patients. And in those pods, you're wearing um, full PPE almost the entire time. In the other mm -hmm. pod, in the other pod actually, and now everywhere in the ED, you're, you're always wearing an N95 mask and a face shield. And that's just because we're doing so many aerosolizing procedures that it, you know, just as a precaution, uh, it's best to always wear that degree of PPE. Okay, so you have the N95 and the face shield even in the clean pod. In the clean, yeah, even in the clean pod, you're still wearing an N95, and then over the N95, you're wearing a surgical, um, a surgical mask, and then you're wearing a face shield on top of that. Gotcha. So yeah, so we're not quite that organized yet, at least where I was yesterday, and uh, it's um. I was wearing the N95 entire shift with these tight goggles and then uh, usually tried to have the face shield on. Although sometimes when I would sit down, I would take it off. And then when you get up again, because there's an emergency, you actually forget sort of what you're wearing because you have so much stuff on your face. Um, so and you can't really touch your face and there's not a lot of mirrors around. Yeah. Uh, I don't even remember all the things I have on sometimes. I, I did wear a papper for my intubations yesterday. Um, which was the first time I've done that, which I liked, made me feel pretty safe inside the paper. And, uh, but um, yeah, we're, we're probably a little bit behind you still trying to organize exactly how the flow is. We do have a separate uh, COVID area, but 
right now we're we're still I think where you were probably a week or two ago trying to figure out exactly who is COVID who is not and right now it seems like almost everybody is yes um but yes, it's, uh, it's really people, hard to distinguish and, the clean pod. Yeah, the clean, the quote unquote clean pod. I mean, we had, I think we had somebody last week who had PID and that person also had COVID. Yeah. So, you know, there's no such thing anymore yeah. as a clean pod in a hot spot, but you try and have it as clean as possible. We're trying to use one N95 a day unless it gets, you know, visibly dirty. And I think that's probably true at a lot of places just to conserve. We don't know where we'll be next week. Um, do you feel like you have like sort of enough um, clinical guidance on sort of how to manage these people in terms of the tests to do or because when all this stuff is so rapid it's hard to believe that two weeks ago I mean two months ago we this thing barely existed and now here we are it's the only thing we do yeah I mean there's a lot of information overload so we get an yeah. update on a pretty regular basis there there are um, sort of ad hoc faculty zoom meetings where we'll talk about what the newest things are yeah. um, Treatment guidelines are being revised at least every few days. Um, you know, the big problem now is that there's been no place to put people. We have a lot of patients who board in the ED, which is something that we typically did not have that much of a problem with before. So we are managing these patients for longer periods of time. And we're getting some guidance from ID about what to start on whom and when. Um, but in terms of the COVID treatments, whether you're going to start them on hydroxychloroquine or enroll them in one of the clinical trials, we're usually leaving that up to ID uh, to decide, and then we will initiate the treatment in the ED if they're still there. I mean, our volumes are way down, and I think if you look across the board, at least at what I've seen in the Manhattan facilities, the volumes are down probably about 20 to 25 percent, but at the same time, the problem is that whereas the admission rates were previously, I don't know, 10 to 12% or whatever they were, that's, that has now probably tripled, uh, if not quadrupled. So, I mean, the patients who are coming in are sicker and they're, they're mostly getting admitted. And we are, right now we are only testing admitted patients. So we're not testing anybody who is uh, treated release. Are you testing everybody who gets admitted? Every single person who gets admitted regardless of their reason for admission. Yeah, that's what we started doing at the university hospital. And I think that makes a big difference in terms of just how we conserve the PP, the general process, how we protect the staff, uh, where we put them upstairs, obviously. So I feel like that's been a huge improvement over the last week. Yeah. And our turnaround time on the test is about six hours. So that's, I think, much better than other places. But we can, we can make a determination of whether they're COVID positive or negative a lot of times while they're still in the ED. Yeah. And the other, the other nice thing about Beth Israel is that, you know, we were slated to to move to a much smaller facility in 2023. So we've been downsizing quite a bit over the last couple of years. And there was a huge amount of space in the hospital that was, that was not being used. So they reopened uh, five or six clinical units uh, within the last two weeks. They, they opened three new ICUs um, and two new uh, medical surgical floors. So we, we did increase our capacity quite a bit, which has been nice, but at the same time, those beds are all got filled up very quickly. So there's, there's still, the hospital is still full. Um, and it doesn't seem to matter how many more beds you add, the patients keep coming and they keep getting admitted. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Yeah. 
So we're not doing really anything on the discharge patients. Are you doing anything on your discharged patients? No, because the recommendations, at least the latest recommendations from ID is um, hydroxychloroquine when they are in hospital, but as soon as they're ready for discharge, that basically you stop the medications and send them home. And we're not starting anything from the ED. Yeah, neither are we. And are you doing the hydroxychloroquine as part of a clinical trial or are you doing this just based upon expert recommendations right now? Expert recommendations. The clinical trials that are going on are sarilumab and remdesivir clinical trial that's currently going on. Then there's convalescent plasma clinical trial. And then there's, I guess they're looking at mesochymal stem cells. I don't know what they're doing with that, but that's part of the, the mm. treatment algorithm. And the convalescent serum is really interesting. There was the JAMA paper, which I'm sure you saw of those five patients and they basically seem to get better. Obviously five patients is not very many. Yeah. It's all anecdotal, but um, at least in theory, it seems like uh, that's something that could potentially work. So really anxious to see what those trials show. And I'm sure they'll publish them as soon as we have any reasonable results. And these are trials basically that are multi-center or these NIH trials, CDC trials, or these local investigators. These are multi-center. Are these pharmaceutical? Multi-center. Yeah. And these are being run predominantly by ID. Mm -hmm. So you've been a researcher for a while, as have I, and at this point it seems like it's this has really sucked the air out of every other type of research. So getting into COVID research um, seems to be what everybody's doing now. Yeah, I mean, there is, there is no other research going on. Um, our research staff were all pulled out of the ED about two and a half weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And the only, the only in-person recruitment that can be performed now is for COVID research. Everything else has to be done remotely. So all of our substance use disorder research basically halted completely. Um, we are still doing follow-ups, but they're all, tele they're all yeah. tele-follow-ups. Yeah, well, that's the same as us. We took everybody out of the ER and transitioning everything to, to deal with this pandemic. And uh, as far as we know, we have no idea when this is going to end, but uh, it's nice to see that there are a lot of trials going on. I guess I worried that we were still just throwing the kitchen sink at people and not really systematically investigating some of these interventions to really help, you know, others around the country. Or share yeah, the, the other thing that, w uh, that I found pretty interesting was that, you know, we, so, you know, we're testing people that we're testing people that are getting admitted that clearly have COVID like symptoms. And we do have people that test negative. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes to show that the, the test itself may not be that great. Um, yeah. mean, meaning that, you know, depending on the technique used or the viral shedding, you just may not pick it up with the test. So even, uh -huh. though, even though some of those tests are negative, we still presume that they're COVID. And then if you test them again later, some of those patients will become positive. So I, yeah. I, mean, I, th I think the test is good. Um, but clearly, if the patient has COVID-type symptoms, even with a negative test, we're assuming that they're COVID. Yeah. Well, I've really liked what we've done at GW. For the really high-risk patients, we're sending the test, but it's a slightly longer PCR assay that takes six to eight hours. And regardless of the result, they're going on isolation just because yeah. they are such high risk. And then it's the lower-risk patients that are getting that 90-minute Cepheid test that we have now. And those patients, they're already starting with a lower risk. If we get a negative also... Um, then I think we're, we're feeling a little bit better about those patients. At the other hospital I work at, um, 
we don't have an in-house test. So managing patients where you don't have the result for several days um, can be challenging. But like you said, you, you generally feel like this is such a weird, unique animal. Like you feel like this is not like something we've seen before. Um, and to see these patients, it feels like you, you know this is a COVID patient, basically. When, when you see those incredibly low sats and uh, sort of normal CO2, the person talking to you with the sats of the 70s and yeah. just sort of getting more and more stressed out. I mean, you know, I've heard people talk about it like it's like high altitude sickness or maybe like thromboembolism or we're not quite sure exactly what it is, but it's, it's a very weird looking thing, different than the most pneumonias we see where we're generally doing it for hypercapnia or airway protection that we're intubating for. This is basically just tiring out from hypoxemia, right. at least in my experience. Um, so yeah, so regardless of the test, you feel like this is, this is COVID when you see it. Yeah. Um, but, and I have, I haven't had a case like this, but I've had heard of people who say they're, you know, they have a patient with a shoulder dislocation, they go and do the x-ray and then they see this bilateral interstitial pneumonia and they're like, holy Jesus. <laughs> yeah, we've seen that. I mean, we've seen patients yeah. who are relatively asymptomatic and then you get an x-ray and it looks, it looks terrible. I mean, we're sending those patients home if they're young and healthy and they're, yeah. you know, and their, their O2 sats are okay and they're not to kip I mean, we're sending them home uh, with obviously return, return precautions, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think it's so prevalent in communities that are, that are in hotspots that it, it's just, you know, it's everybody you see can have COVID. <laughs> Crazy. I feel like I was reading about this and I was trying to sound the alarm and I, I knew it intellectually that this was coming from like January, February, but it still didn't really feel like it was happening. And you know, I went to the regional SAM, we helped organize. It's just hard to believe that we even held that. It just, it didn't like click really until it really hits you, even though, you know, you, you know, it's coming, you see the numbers, you start to see those cases on Washington state and then to see it really happen. It's so hard to just get your head behind it where three weeks later, this is where we are, where you're saying to me that everybody has it. It's, yeah. just, it's an unbelievable situation. Yeah, I mean, I was at a uh, NIH training March 10th, and I was coming back on the train March 11th when I got the announcement from Sinai that they were um, not allowing faculty to travel out more than 100 miles outside of the city without prior permission. So, I mean, like, it's, it's been, that's, that's less than a month ago. And now yeah. it's now it's just a totally different world. Yeah. No, it's it's amazing. Um, I, you remember when you heard Tom Hanks got sick, and when you heard the NBA canceled, and the, each step when Disney World yeah. closed, you're like, oh my god, it keeps growing. And then obviously when it hits your community, um, you really feel it. The um, the the patient who comes in like, sort of let's say over 65, sats below 90s. Um, maybe a bad chest x-ray, but looks okay. I mean, those are patients, I, I sort of struggle with exactly what we should do with them. Um, they don't look horrible, but I, I'm feeling like these are patients we need to admit and we need to watch to make sure they don't go downhill depending upon where they are in this time course. I, I feel like if, if it's less than 14 days, they still have this chance of really taking a turn. Do you, are you guys yeah, doing a similar thing? Or yeah, similar? We're, we're admitting those patients. Um, and I think that was also one of the things that was difficult in the beginning was that we weren't getting great guidance about who to, who to discharge and who to admit. Mm -hmm. um, I think as we've had more experience with these patients, that's gotten a little bit easier. Um, 
So I, for the most part, those patients who are, if they have any comorbidities and their SATs are in the low 90s, on less than 94%, 94% or less, we're, we're admitting those patients for the most part. Yeah. And then will they get in the clinical trial or maybe, or maybe not? Or? They're going to, most of those patients are going to get started on uh, hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. What do you think of hydroxychloroquine? Do you think this is promising? I, I don't. I, I don't think it's no. I don't think it's the magic bullet. Okay. You know. I was interesting to see that this doctor in upstate New York, um, who's been getting all this publicity, apparently he's texting with, with Rudy Giuliani, and Trump's been retweeting him. He was someone I went to med school with. He was my same year at Downstate. Oh really? And, uh, <laughs> so Joanne and I were laughing about that. <laughs> we remember him very well. He was a character at school. Yeah, I mean so, that's uh, the, that's his <laughs> cocktail, right? Of like. Um, yeah. Azithromycin, hydroxychloroquine. So that's the clinical protocol they're and using zinc. now. Yeah. Yeah. So they're starting um, hydroxychloroquine, and you can add azithro for hospitalized patients with an O2 set of 94 or less. Um, yeah. That, that's at least part of That's our guidelines. Yeah. Well, we'll see if it works. I feel like hydroxychloroquine has been tried for a thousand different illnesses and usually yes. doesn't work, but uh, <laughs> perhaps this is the one. And, uh, interested to see the study. Um, there's, uh, I think managing just the normal ER cases in this time is sometimes hard to get your head around also. Like, I mean, it's not like people have stopped having heart attacks, not like they've stopped having strokes. And now that there's more kids at home, at first we saw a decrease in violence. And now yesterday I've seen it come back up a little bit just because I think people are bored again and there's not much to do. Um, and people get into trouble, but, uh, yeah, it's, I don't think people quite realize just the uncontrolled environment of the ER and uh, yeah. how even though we're protected, it's, you never know what's coming in and the patient becomes an agitator, a patient comes in on drugs and the patient needs to be restrained. And how many people it takes to sort of get that person under control and at the same time trying to protect yourself and, and they just keep coming in. I just, it's, it's really a challenge. And, you know, it's, it's not something that I think other doctors always understand, but I think us in the ER, we really know what it's like. And in a few cases like that yesterday, you're just like, oh my God, I hope this guy's negative, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're still, we're still seeing patients with substance use disorder. Uh, yeah. we're, we're still seeing strokes and heart attacks. I mean, it's, it's not that those patients don't come. Uh, but I think one of the things that you can get that you have to be cautious about that I noticed when I was working the last time is that you can't just chalk everything up to COVID. Um, True, good point. So yeah. you have, you still have to think, you know, you still have to keep your differential broad yeah. um, and can't say, oh, you know, this is just COVID, send the patient home. You still need to think exactly. about other things. No, it's true. I mean, we, you see an obvious bad pneumonia and it used to be, we would just throw on some antibiotics immediately. Now it's like, oh, it's COVID. It was almost my second thought. I almost forgot to give antibiotics yesterday for some of these patients, not even knowing if it was COVID because it still could be right. community acquired. There's still a chance. And, um, yeah, you still have to get the troponins on the chest tightness and you still have to, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm ordering a, probably a lot more tests too, just because I'm trying to really figure out what's useful now in terms of the ferritin and the LDH and all the other things I've been reading about. Yeah, we started uh, sending, this week we started sending IL-6. Um, yeah, I tried to do that Which yesterday. is something that we, <laughs> I don't you know, like it's something that we never would have sent before, but yes, now we're sending those. I don't, yeah, I'd have to look up where that, fits into the inflammatory <laughs> pathway IL-6, but um, sounds important. Yeah, exactly. I tried to order it yesterday. Our lab didn't uh, offer that as a menu option, but um, 
I think at GW we can do that. But uh, it's uh, yeah, it's um, I think all these are sort of proxies until we can get more rapid testing. And I'm nervous about when I keep hearing about these PCR reagents running out, and it sounds like everybody essentially uses maybe a slightly different machine, but essentially they're all using the same types of reagents. And you're all putting the same nucleotides in, the same enzymes, the same TAC polymerase in. And uh, I now know of two hospitals in the area where they say they have machines, but they don't have reagents to run them. Um, this is something I don't totally know about the supply chain with reagents for PCRs, but I do know that with this Abbott test coming on, that is more of a similar to an antibody type test to an antigen. And I think hopefully that will alleviate some of those pressures for these reagents. But uh, I don't know if you guys have had similar experience in New York with just the labs being able to run the tests. Yeah, we haven't. I mean, which has been surprising because we've been running the test now for, in, we've been running the test in-house for quite a while. Um, and it's still, it, it has not been an issue, um, at least not so far. Yeah. Well, that's good. And, um, have you heard about other ER docs just sort of dealing with just the general sort of social isolation and the issues with potentially getting sick and how they deal with their families? I know at least two or three people in our group who are staying at the mother-in-laws or living in the basement, or, you know, and still going to work and still dealing with these sick people and then not coming home to sort of any family or anything like that. And I can only imagine just how that weighs on just people's psyche. And I can imagine it's probably worse in New York. Have you uh, talked to colleagues like that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think that everybody who particularly has kids or, you know, is living with somebody who's in the at-risk group is really, is, is very concerned. I mean, our, our group has been very fortunate that we haven't had people out with COVID, maybe a few, but yeah, I mean, I think, I, th I think it's a big issue, you know, in the city, there are things that, that places have begun to offer like hotel rooms um, for healthcare workers at free or discounted prices. But yeah, I mean, I can't imagine going through this and not having some sort of family support. I mean, the group, our group has set up a number of wellness activities. So there's Zoom calls with like Zoom happy hour and um, Zoom yoga. So, it, and there's all types of stuff, but again, it's like, you know, how, you know, how many Zoom calls can you do in a day? Like oh there are some gosh. days where, where you're just on Zoom the entire day and it, it's just, it's yeah. just overwhelming. So I, I think yeah. it's really, it's, it's mentally challenging for, for us as ER docs. And then it's also the same, you know, like when we get to the point or when you get to the point where there's just so many patients, um, you know, and you have to have these conversations with people about, you know, palliative, palliative care, which we've been talking about a lot recently and about need, you know, needs for intubation and, and um, goals of care planning. I mean, those are things that we should have been doing all along, but we're definitely doing it much more now than we were before. Uh, at the same time, we do have more support. I mean, there's a lot more um, on-call palliative coverage, which is nice. But mm -hmm. I think it's it's tough when you're in the ED and you just are seeing like intubated patient after intubated patient after intubated patient. So that's really, really challenging. The system actually has set up um, what are called um, crisis triage teams. 
So there are four teams that are on call. There are four teams. One team is on call every day. And those teams, once we reach, um, once we reach critical capacity and we are desperately short of ventilators, those teams will actually make the decisions about who gets a ventilator and who does not, or who gets removed from the ventilator so that the frontline healthcare providers don't have to make that call. So that's something that's, that I think the system has done quite well, remove that, that triage allocation decision from the frontline docs, which can be extremely stressful and, and morally challenging. So uh, when are we gonna peak? When's this gonna be over? Supposedly in the city, we keep hearing that the peak is coming this week. Uh, yeah. You know, within the next five to seven days, I think we'll see. I was looking at the volume today in the ED and it, you know, it doesn't look terrible. Um, yeah. But I think the problem is that even if you hit a peak now, then the, the patients are still on ventilator. These patients don't come yeah. off the ventilator quickly. I mean, it's not, time, like, yeah. it's not like, it's not like you're, your septic patient who's vented for a few days, these patients are vented for like weeks. Yeah, um, it's true. So it's really, you know, they're still gonna be with us for a long time. We're still gonna have a crowding problem. That's a huge burden on the nurses. But uh, thank you so much. I think that's all for us. We're out of time and I uh, won't take up too much of your day, but uh, it's great to talk to people from New York and help us as we start to go through what you've gone through the last two weeks. And um, I think that's it. All right, sounds good. So, no problem. I'll talk to you soon. All okay. Right. Later. Right, bye. Bye. Urgent Matters was founded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in 2002. Since then, it has served as a dissemination vehicle for the best practices in emergency care through our webinars, podcasts, newsletters, issue briefs, innovation awards, and national meetings. Currently sponsored by the Ronald Reagan Institute of Emergency Medicine at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., Urgent Matters supports innovative care strategies and is a resource for the ED community to discover field-tested new initiatives that can be tailored to their local practice or organization. Our editorial board consists of a holistic group of stakeholders, including ASEP, West Health, EDPMA, and AACCP. Yeah, I've been making mixes, working on my photo albums, so, you know. <laughs>